Welcome to the Well SGV podcast. We exist to multiply followers of Jesus rooted in the gospel who worship, walk, and witness to God's glory. Here's our message for the week. All right, yeah, but I just love the fact that uh, yeah, here we are going into November, and November is a really busy time, right? We're uh, starting to think about Thanksgiving, planning for that. Uh, we're, we feel a little tired maybe from work and school and uh, and then we got to think about December and Christmas and get stressful and all those different things. And uh, it's very easy, I think, during this time to get very inward focused and kind of get uh, absorbed in our world, uh, kind of, uh, and then just feel really tired and frazzled and just kind of lose maybe our focus a little bit on who God is and just his call to love the people around us, to share the gospel, do all those things. And so the thing that I, I think I just really love and appreciate is that uh, we, as a church, uh, we want to go counter to the culture. Uh, we want to learn to be the kind of church that gives rather than consumes, a church that uh, continues to say, Jesus, uh, during this time, help us to focus on you. Help us to just serve and love you and to think about the people around us and how we can really uh, demonstrate your love to the people around us. So uh, we have our Giving Sunday. Uh, we're going to take all the offerings, 100% of that will we'll go to just the, the ministries and organizations in our communities so that we could be a blessing to them. And uh, Frank and Lonnie and Operation Christmas Child and what you guys are doing, uh, so appreciate that message that you brought to us. Uh, that we are called to go and make disciples, all of us. And this is one way that we can do that. So uh, just, you know, this is what we would be about the well, is uh, really um, just giving and taking this gospel. Uh, we've been uh, loved and changed by Jesus himself, and we want to be his ambassadors. Uh, we want to really be that, those age, uh, his agents of change to the culture and the people around us. So this is what this time is about. And uh, so I just appreciate and love that focus. Uh, and at the same time, we, again, just as a reminder, we will not be here uh, next Sunday. So just remember that if you show up, you'll have a nice quiet time, okay? You and the Lord, uh, that'll be good too, right? But uh, anyway, catch our live stream at 9 a.m., but our prayer, or our theme is going to be on prayer, and that's going to be so important. Um, I, I kind of put this out there, but one of the, uh, you know, one of the, uh, is it, it's Corey Ten Bloom. And I came across this quote from Corey Ten Bloom uh, a couple weeks ago, and it just really impacted my heart. And uh, just a good reminder, is prayer the spare tire of your life, or is it the steering wheel? Right? Is prayer something that we resort to when we're in trouble? You know, okay, nothing else worked. Well, maybe I should pray. Or is prayer what really drives our lives? Is it the first thing that we, we look to? And uh, so that's the thing that uh, through this retreat, uh, um, you know, as John Horry comes to speak to us, uh, we want to really uh, ask ourselves and just grow in prayer. Uh, and at the same time, in, uh, you know, two Fridays, November 17th, I really want to just encourage you, please, uh, come to our prayer gathering. I really believe that 
our monthly upper room prayer gathering. This is the most important gathering that we've got going at the well, right? This is the gathering. And so I want to encourage you, come to this gathering. There's a lot of um, things that we, we are doing, you know, and, you know, we have the women's tea. We have a lot of different things. Those are all great. Uh, come to the prayer gathering. Come to that, because that's going to be, uh, I really believe as we come before the Lord in prayer, that's, that's where we experience God's presence. That's where I think God is going to really direct and lead us. So that's our upper room, okay? Well, with that, um, I'm going to just invite us to go to the Lord in prayer with, and uh, ask him to just open our hearts. So let's do that. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you've revealed yourself uh, through your word and that, uh, Jesus, you are the bread of life. You are what we are craving for, what our hearts are hungering for. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would open up our ears, our hearts, our souls, help us to respond to your word. Uh, Jesus, we want to worship you. And Lord, uh, we come to you knowing that we are hungry and we are thirsty apart from you. Help us to see that. And help us to see, Jesus, that we need you all the time. We worship you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There is a class at Harvard. It's the most popular class at Harvard University. Does anyone want to guess what the most popular class might be? Is it economics? Is it about financial markets? Is it, you know, about healthcare? What do you think the most popular class at Harvard might be? The number one class, most popular class at Harvard University is a class that's taught by this professor, Dan Gilbert, and the topic of this class is on happiness. The number one class. The brightest and most successful are looking for happiness. And uh, scientists at Harvard began tracking the health of 268 sophomores in 1938 during the Great Depression. And what they hoped to discover out of this study that began in 1938 was this uh, long longitudinal study of clues that might lead to living a healthy and happy life. And uh, following, what they did was uh, for the next 80 years, they tracked these sophomores. 80 years, an 80-year-long year study uh, as part of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. It's one of the world's longest studies of adult life ever conducted. And researchers collected uh, all kinds of data about uh, what leads to physical and mental health. Um, the original Harvard cohort that was recruited to participate in the study, this, uh, this grant study. You know, only 19 of them are still alive. But among the original recruits in this cohort, these 80 co uh, members, were the eventual president, John F. Kennedy, longtime Washington Post editor, Ben Bradley. Uh, women were not included in the study because at the time, Harvard was still an all-male college. And over the years... Uh, these researchers then tracked all these 80 men's lives. They looked at their trajectories of their lives, their, their triumphs, their failures, and their careers, their work, their marriages, their families, all these kinds of things. And the findings produced very, very surprising, startling 
lessons, including even for the researchers of this study. Gilbert's thesis is really, really simple. You know what he discovered through these 80 years on what leads to happiness? He says, basically, that we are very poor predictors of what will make us happy. He argues in this study that we have the wrong map, mental maps, in the pursuit of happiness. And that our brains systemically misjudge consistently what will actually make us truly happy. That's his conclusion. And it's not that we can't get what we want, but it's that we actually don't know what we really want. That's what he, they discovered. Gilbert says, speaking as a scientist, looking at the raw data, we are almost always wrong. Almost always wrong. Now, you don't actually have to believe Harvard or Dan Gilbert or attend a class at Harvard to believe this. All you actually have to do is believe in Jesus, believe what he said about ourselves, about how human nature works, about the world that we live in, about who God is, and the wisdom of Scripture. If you believe in Jesus, this Harvard study basically confirms what Jesus has already told us. What I want to share uh, through this passage uh, is that there is a Jesus, oftentimes, even for us, that we want. And then there is the real Jesus, the Jesus as he reveals himself in Scripture. But only the real Jesus can actually save and satisfy. Only the real Jesus. And I want to show you this through this passage. Uh, I'm going to start off here in verse 12, and, um, and I'm going to kind of work us through this passage a little bit. But in John chapter 6, verse 12, John record, records, when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, this is the same feeding of the 5,000 passage that we looked at a few weeks ago in the Gospel of Luke. And as you recall... Uh, if you were there, that in the feeding of 5,000 there, King Herod was basically asking, who is this Jesus, right? And some were saying, well, he's Elijah, maybe Moses, maybe John the Baptist. But here, uh, we looked at from the perspective of Jesus revealing who he was uh, to his disciples, to the 5,000. But what we want to look at here is... Jesus from the perspective of the crowd. How are they looking at Jesus? How are they perceiving him? Now, look at this situation. The scenario is that Jesus 
by his power, miraculously feeds this crowd of 5,000. And the crowd is absolutely astounded by what they've seen, right? Five loaves of bread, two fish, and like, how could this be? 5,000 people, and that's just men. It's, you know, if you include the women and children, probably a few more thousand easily, right? This is what's going through the crowd's minds. They've just witnessed this tremendous miracle. They're looking at Jesus. Wow, that's amazing that he could do something like this. They're looking at their lives, and they're looking at their political situation and circumstance. They're looking at the Roman rule that is overtaking their lives and all the suffering, oppression, and everything that accompanies that. And they're thinking, in their minds, this Jesus who just did this and fed all of us, that's it. He is the one. He is the one who is going to finally deliver us from all this oppression, from the Romans, their rule, and all this suffering and pain that we have to endure because of the Romans in our lives. And so what they do is they they go up to Jesus, Jesus, you're it. You're going to be our king. And if you resist us, we're going to make you our king by force. You have no choice. You are going to be our king. But what's going on in the minds of the crowds? The crowds are looking at Jesus, and they are just looking at Jesus as simply a means to their agenda to their plans. I see Jesus' power, and this is what he could do for me. This is what he could do for us. That's how they look at Jesus. I want to ask you this question. Who is Jesus to you? How do you view Jesus? How do you perceive Jesus? How do you treat Jesus? Uh, I think there is a lot of ways that we look at Jesus. And there's a lot of ways that we look at Jesus as a way, as a means for our lives. There is what I might call the political Jesus. This version of Jesus is Jesus is a Democrat. He's broad-minded, he's tolerant, he's all about compassion, justice, and mercy, and uh, the rights of the poor, the immigrant, all of that. This is who Jesus is. Not this narrow-minded, bigoted, you know, uh, just self-righteous, you know, other party, right? Or he's the Republican. He's all about anti-abortion, anti-same-sex marriage, all of that. Um, You know, he's not liberal like those Democrats, you know. So some people co-opt Jesus into a political Jesus, right? He's this or he's that. And then you have maybe the therapeutic Jesus. The therapeutic Jesus is a Jesus you just kind of whip out when you're in trouble, right? Uh, When you need help. So this Jesus, is the main goal of having Jesus in your life is really someone who will listen to all your problems, Uh, He'll be a good listener. He'll be a good ear when you need a good ear. He might offer some advice here and there, help kind of give you some direction about your life, how to proceed. 
But your prayers to Jesus, it's filled with very little worship of who Jesus actually is. There isn't much praise in your prayer life. It's just, okay, I need some help, and this is how you can help me with these kind of things, and I'm going to ask for these grocery list kind of things. And then there is the affirming Jesus. It is a Jesus who would never challenge your beliefs and lifestyle, right? Uh, Jesus would never disagree with you so that you never really feel challenged at the core of your being, right? He would never do something like that. He's there to affirm you, not actually change you. This is the affirming Jesus, always so positive, always so affirming in my life. And then there's maybe the tame, harmless Jesus. And the tame, harmless Jesus is uh, the Jesus, well, I'll go church, maybe um, there's a few songs that, that I like, maybe something I might hear that might inspire me a little bit. But it's, it's a little bit like going to see your grandparents, right? It's nice to visit your grandparents, have a meal, have some tea with them, chat a little bit, but then afterward, you just kind of go along in your way. This Jesus is too nice to make any real demands. He's tame. He's harmless. And what I would submit is that all of us have a version of Jesus that caters to what we want. This is what will make me happy, and this is a Jesus that will help me to get to my happiness. The crowds wanted Jesus to overthrow the Roman Empire. They saw Jesus for what he could do, and Jesus saw the crowds. And so what did he do? He resisted the crowds. He tried to actually get away from the crowds. He saw their agenda, and he saw that they weren't actually interested in knowing who he was. They just wanted to use Jesus to, to, in a sense, free them from their pain. Now, what's going on? Jesus is a different kind of king. And the kind of king that Jesus is, is he has actually a far more radical view of what the actual problem is and a far more radical view of the solution to the problem in life. For the crowds... Their main problem, or as they saw it, the main problem in life is really it's, it's other people. That's the main problem. And if we could be free from these other people, then our lives will be good. It will be happy. But the Bible and Jesus would say that the main problem is something completely different. The main problem is not with others, but the Bible consistently says, and this is what Jesus points out, the problem is within. It's within our lives. It's within our hearts. That's where the real problem is. We all have desires. Some desires that are good. But we have other desires that are bent and distorted by the fall and by sin. And even the good desires that we have in our lives are desires that can become over-desires. A good desire that becomes an over-desire is then something that can enslave us. And even the desires that we think are good in our lives, it's not always true that those are 
actually good desires. Jeremiah 17.9 says, A heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? There are things, all kinds of things that go through our hearts, and it's easy for us to justify these are good desires. But the Bible says, well, think again. The heart is deceitful. It could be deceiving you. Like, we don't live ultimately by our feelings and desires and wants. Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, verse 21 through 22, he says this, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. It's always within our human nature to think that the problem is always outside of us. If I only change my circumstances, if only this person changes, if only these things happen in my life, if I get the right position, job, uh, relationship, whatever it is, if I have all these things in my life, set in my life, this is what will make me happy. And Jesus is giving a very different assessment. The main problem is something actually that has to be dealt with within us, deep within us. And the solution is not just to change another person or to change the, the circumstance. The solution is something that has to come from outside to our hearts. It's not just to free you from external slavery, it's to free you from the more powerful enslavement of sin, of the enemy of Satan and death. That's what the Bible will say are the true enemies. And this is what Jesus is, is going to try to point out to the crowd. In verse 22, it says, and this is it's only the real Jesus who saves and satisfies. But in verse 22, John says, On the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they began to say to him, or they, began, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Again, the crowds, they're looking, they're looking for Jesus, and they are looking for Jesus to perform another miracle for them. In other words, they want Jesus to provide another free lunch. This is what they're looking for. But Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is a work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And, you know, they're working hard, they're, they're trying to, you know, they're working hard to get this food that will provide material, financial comforts, but Jesus is saying, look, there's a meal, there's a food that goes beyond just 
this day or just this meal. There's a food that satisfies, that endures forever. And so they said to them, well then, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. The crowds are looking at this time in the Old Testament when the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, and as they're wandering, uh, God supernaturally provides manna, um, you know, this flaky kind of um, bread, and appears for them every single day, and they're looking back on this miracle, and they're giving credit to Moses, saying, well, Moses used to provide this. Well, how about you, Jesus? Can you do this for us? But Jesus tell them, tells them, it's not Moses, it's actually God. Like God is the one who provided what they needed, not Moses. And let me tell you that the true bread is Jesus. It's I myself. He's promising to this crowd, you're always looking to just satiate your immediate hunger. You're working for things that are going to perish, spoil. This is not going to satisfy you forever. You need something that's going to last forever in your life. Um, Jesus is calling them to see their more profound and important hunger. We all have a deep hunger. We have a hunger for purpose in our lives for meaning, for hope in our hearts. We all long for these things. And the things that we look for um, to give us these things, we try to fill it with all different things in our lives. We could, we could try to fill it with money, with work, with relationships. But these things ultimately won't give us meaning. It won't give us purpose. It won't give us hope. What hope will you have when you're suffering and you're in great pain? What hope will you have beyond death? None of these things will ever give that to you. But Jesus is offering a satisfaction and a salvation that goes beyond all these things. All of us are aware, right? This, uh, is it a week and a half ago or two weeks ago, um, Matthew Perry, right? Matthew Perry, a very beloved actor on Friends. Uh, Friends was a TV show that our generation grew up on, okay? That was like, I remember uh, as a teenager, that was, it was, that was when they were doing Friends, right? Just like, and it resonated so much. And it's amazing that a TV show that resonated when I was growing up uh, resonates so much with this generation too, the younger generation. Like, I noticed my kids watching Friends. I go, oh, wait a minute, like... I used to watch this. Like, how'd you even know about this show? I didn't even tell them about it, right? And how'd you find out about it? Anyway, they found it. So they started watching this, right? But it's like, uh, you know, there's something about this, this uh, show that, um, that really resonates with us, right? It's, there's a sense of, I, you know, there's a group of people who know me. They love me for who I am. 
I get to know them and journey with them through life. And, you know, we get to uh, talk about all kinds of things with each other and connect on a deep level. And there's that community, the sense of like meaning, but sense that you're being loved, deeply loved by people around you. Uh, and you work through relational difficulties, and sometimes they annoy you or whatever, but you learn to work through those things, and, uh, and you grow deeper with each other, right? And those are things that really um, resonate with us very, very deeply, right? And so that's why this, this show, I think, has really sort of transcended uh, you know, beyond my generation. And it looks, it looks so ideal, and it looks so romanticized in many ways. And for a lot of people, uh, including myself, um, I had no idea that Matthew Perry was struggling deeply at the time that he was filming Friends. So while he's, all this is going on on TV, right, and on the, the screen, like, they all look so happy and joyful being together as friends and all that, uh, Matthew Perry is struggling through deep, deep addictions, like deep emptiness, drinking, drugs, painkillers, all of that while he's filming. And uh, it was interesting, you know, there's been a lot said about Matthew Perry, right, in the past couple weeks or so, but let me show you the spiritual side of Matthew Perry and the journey that he went through. So this is what he prayed uh, right before he got the part for friends. He said, Please, God, make me famous. Right? It's an honest prayer, and I appreciate his honesty. It's very honest. You can do anything you want to me. Just make me famous. And three weeks later, I got friends, and God did not forget about the second part. Okay? So, again, I just love his, the honesty of his prayer. It's very sincere, right? It's like the kind of prayer that I think I prayed when I was in sixth grade. You know, Lord, help, please let me be a millionaire or something like that, right? Like, I, I think I actually prayed that. Um, well, you know, God had other plans for my life. So, but, um, but this is what he prayed, and, he, and God answered that. But all the success that he experienced on Friends as an actor could never take away those demons, right? The addictions, the, the deep, deep pain in his life, in his heart, in his soul, the enslavement. He said this, I weighed 128 pounds. I was on Friends getting watched by 30 million people, and that's why I can't watch the show, because I was brutally thin. I didn't watch the show and haven't watched the show because I could go drinking opiates, drinking cocaine. This is all happening while he's filming throughout these years. Well, Matthew Perry, right? So Friends comes in the end uh, after some seasons, and you've got to live your life. You've got to move on, right? So he's moving on. But he comes to a point later in his life where he then prays something a little bit differently than when he first started praying. Later in 2018, Perry cried out to God, but this time his prayer came from a deeper place in his heart, in his soul. And he prayed what he said was a very sincere prayer to God. He said, God, please help me. 
I whispered. Show me that you are here. God, please help me. As I kneeled, the light slowly began to get bigger and bigger until it was so big that it encompassed the entire room. What was happening? And why was I starting to feel better? I'd been in the presence of God. I was certain of it. And this time, I had prayed for the right thing. Help. Help. And you can see Matthew Perry's soul, right? He started off with like this middle school kind of prayer, you know, make me famous, make me make a lot of money or whatever, like give me all these kind of things that he thought would make him happy, but it didn't. It didn't take away the deep, deep hunger in his heart and his soul. But he finally gets to the point in his life where he realized, I've, I've, I've tasted it. I've, I've had all the success in the world. I've, ha- I've had the following. But I am desperately sick, and I need help. So he finally calls out to God for help. And when he f- calls out to God for the deep help that he needs, that's when he gets the meaning. That's when he gets the hope. That's when he gets the satisfaction. This is Matthew Perry. This is the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. And this is the kind of thing that Dan Gilbert in his study, the Harvard study, was talking about as well. The things that we think will make us happy, we have no clue. We are almost always wrong about our self-perceptions of what will give us meaning, joy, and happiness in life. The true enemy problem, as Jesus said, is not outside of us. It's inside of us. And no amount of external success, security, no relationship person will ever fill the deep void and hunger of our souls. Can ever heal the problem inside of us. It's only Jesus himself. This is what he says. He says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He himself is the one alone who saves and satisfies our lives. There's no one else, nothing else that can do that than Jesus. And Jesus is constantly calling you and I in these moments of our lives to constantly trust in him. He's constantly reaching out to you to trust him with all that that he can do, all that he provides, all for our future, our health, our desires, everything submitted to him. And And Jesus says, I alone will give you what your heart is truly longing for. You may not even realize it, but I will satisfy One of the verses that my mentor uh, for several years spoke to me during a very, very dark period of my life uh, when I had gone through like very shattered expectations, uh, expectations of what, you know, I thought the Lord, how he should work and those kind of things, people whom I thought I could count on, but weren't there for me, 
um, and just different things that, that happened. But one of the verses that my mentor shared with me that always stuck was this verse from Jeremiah 2.13. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And this describes the true dilemma of the human soul, of our hearts. We're always trying to satisfy something deep within us through broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They promise to give you water, but they don't satisfy. And so we forsake God himself, the source of true living water for our souls. We're always worshiping. Even in, well, in the name of Jesus, when we think it's a good desire, but our hearts lead us astray. And we think a relationship, a person, security, this, my status, or whatever, how people think of me, those things are going to but it doesn't. And this is the issue. This is the problem. And I remember going through this time and being deeply convicted that the things I was looking to to sustain me, Mimi, she couldn't sustain me. There's no way. And, you know, Mimi, like, you know, not that she did anything wrong, but it just, it, it, it wouldn't work. My relationship with her, um, church, ministry, like none of those things. It's only God himself. It's only Jesus. And so what this meant for me is going through periods of deep repentance, saying, Lord, um, yeah, it's not Mimi, it's not a family that can satisfy my inner thirst and my needs. Um, you know, they may be there when I need them, but they may not be. They're not always going to be there for me. Only you, Jesus, you're the only one who will love me through and through, all the way to the end, who will always be there. And no amount of ministry, like success in ministry, church plan, whatever, this is not what's going to satisfy. It's only Jesus. So success, failure, I mean, hey, I want us to be successful. I'm going to work hard to empower you to be as successful as possible. But that's not the true source of satisfaction. It's only Jesus. It's only Jesus, right? There's nothing else. And if I look to these other things, it's, it's just going to be a broken cistern. It's not going to work. It's going to be a broken, a leaky water. That's all that's going to be the result. And so this is, this is a Jesus, the real Jesus, who says, are you... Are you looking to me to satisfy you? Are we looking to Jesus to be to save us? Are we looking to something else or some other person? Are we looking to these other false sources? They cannot save. It will not save you. It will not satisfy. So think about expectations of God, of people, when they disappoint, that feeling of disappointment. Maybe that's God's way of saying, what are you looking to to satisfy you? If people are disappointing you, maybe it's because your heart is not looking to Jesus to satisfy. And you're looking too much to people to do that for you, to take the place of Jesus. Worshiping God, trusting him, 
we can trust him because Jesus is, his love is the only love that will endure. His death on the cross for you and I is enough to say, I've given you everything. I've given you my life. What more can I give you? What more proof is there of my love for you than the fact that I've given my life to you? That he took your, took your sins. He bore the punishment for your sins. He, it was nailed on the cross so that you can be reconciled with God. The judgment could be taken away, the wrath of God. And then Jesus then says, I want to be the one in your life who satisfies your heart. Only I can do it. Like only I can love you through and through, all the way to the end. So use this time to respond to the Lord. Would you praise and worship him? But would you repent? Would you come before Jesus and say, Jesus, I admit, I get disappointed with people and this and that, and I've got to just repent because I, I realize that I am looking to broken cisterns. These cisterns cannot hold the water that my soul needs. I need the living water. I need the living bread. That's you. And would you come before Jesus in repentance? Would you turn to him and say, Lord Jesus, would you fill me once again? Would you be the one who saves me? Father, we thank you uh, that you are the great God and King. God, we thank you for your great love for us, uh, that we will never be separated from the love of God, which is in Christ. We thank you for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which makes it possible for us to know you. And we thank you for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the Lord, you live in us. Lord, Christ in us, that is our hope. We praise you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Go and be blessed. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We would love to hear from you and help you take one step closer to Jesus. To contact us or for more information, please go to www.thewellsgv.org.